living God, you have the words of eternal life. Help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand and understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may open your Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 3. I often love how children's messages just really get to the, to the heart of the message, and, and really it is all about Jesus, and that's what we're, we're looking at this morning. And I'm, and I'm glad, Brad, that you brought up television and the internet and screens. You know, that really, I think, speaks to, to many children, including my own. Acts chapter 3, we will, uh, Lord willing, we will be looking at uh, both Acts 3 and 4 today and next Sunday, and so we will look at the first, uh, first half or first three quarters this morning. Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this day, of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord 
and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets, from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The priests and the captain of the guard of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them by what, by what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Thus far the reading of God's word. It was three o'clock in the afternoon, and there were a lot of people going up to the temple to pray and observe the afternoon sacrifice. And, and there were two men that were carrying the, the crippled man to the temple gate. The, the, the beggar had, had his arms around the neck of one of the men, and the other man cautiously carried the lame ran a man around his middle. There was nothing unusual about this scene. It was almost always the same men who carried the same beggar day after day. And today was like any other day. The crippled man came to the temple gate to get some needed money and gifts. Donations, please. I'll take your money over here. This is what the man did day after day because he had no choice. He had no government aid. Begging for donations was his livelihood. He would die otherwise. The lame man was stuck outside the temple gate. 
Because of his handicap, he was not permitted inside the gate. The law prohibited people with physical defects. A few minutes after the crippled beggar got settled on the ground and had received a few measly coins from passerbys, he spotted Peter and John. Perhaps the beggar had recognized Peter as, as the man who had delivered that powerful sermon not long ago. So he says, donations, I need some money for food. And then Peter said, look at us. No one ever talks to me, the beggar thought. Maybe this is going to be my big payout. The cripple was hoping and expecting to receive maybe one of his highest donations ever. And then Peter got down to the man's level. He got real close to the man's face, and he said, I don't have any money, silver or gold. And then he smiled. Peter knew that God was going to do something, that Jesus was going to do something powerful through him. Instead of a huge monetary donation, the lame man received something way bigger, something he never asked for and something he never dreamed would happen. You see that the man came from his mother's womb, a cripple. He had never been able to walk or be independent. The man believed that things would continue as they always did. He figured he would always need to, to beg for money and that he would always be a, a crippled, weak man and perhaps die soon and that he would always be stuck outside the temple. When Peter said, I don't have any money, he didn't stop there. I can imagine Peter thinking to himself, I got something to tell you that is infinitely better than all the riches in the world. He said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. The man accepted Peter's outstretched hand, and as the, mo as the man reached for that hand, he instantly felt his ankles and his feet gain strength. Not only did, did the formerly crippled man walk around, he went with Peter into the temple courts, a place he had never been permitted or able to go to before. He, he, he jumped, he, he leaped like an athlete. He was exuberant and, and elated, and he sang the praises to God with all of his might. This healing and this man's exuberant behavior caused quite a commotion. People came pouring into Solomon's colonnade, and nu numerous people were were staring at this formerly crippled man and, and, and looking at him and, and then looking at, at Peter and John and, and then back at the crippled man again. And they were murmuring to themselves. So Peter spoke up to the astonished crowd, Now wait. Don't think for a second that John and I had anything to do with this. We most certainly did not. It was not because of any of our own power or godliness that made that caused this miracle to happen in this man's life. Peter and John did have faith, not in their own strength, but in Jesus Christ. God works through faith. In this case, he worked through the faith of Peter and John and, and perhaps the faith of the crippled man as well. Verse 16 of chapter 3 says, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know has been made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him 
that has given this complete healing to this man, as you can all see. Ultimately, Jesus healed this man. But the text also said that, says that faith was involved. James 1.6 says that when we ask the Lord for something, we should ask in faith without doubting. We must believe that God is able to do whatever we're asking him for. A person who doubts is, is like a, a wave of the sea that's tossed back and forth. The crippled man was healed by the name of Jesus. When we pray, we almost always end our prayers in Jesus' name. In the biblical sense, name means everything that is true about the person. Name represents the person himself and is an extension of the person's being and personality. The crippled beggar was healed in Jesus' name. That is, by his power and presence and authority. In a very real sense, Jesus, through Peter, continued his healing ministry. But before actually telling the crowd that it was the name of Jesus that healed the crippled man, Peter says in verses 13 to 15, the God of our fathers glorified Jesus. But you, you handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him. You disowned the holy and righteous one. And you asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. What do you think, people of Bethel? Did we hand Jesus over to be killed? Have we disowned the holy and righteous one? Peter was making the, the people feel responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Do you feel responsible? Let me put it this way. Every time I doubt God's power and control over all things, I, I, I disown Jesus. Every time I sin, every time I, I lose control of my anger and have an impure thought, I put Jesus on the cross. Without Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that followed, I would have no hope. I would be lost in my life of sin. In Acts 2, at the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon, when the people were faced with their sin and the glory of Christ, they were cut to the heart, and they asked, What shall we do? In, in chapter 3, verse 19, Peter tells them, and he tells us what we must do, repent and turn to God. It's so easy to say something like, Lord, please forgive my sins and forget about it. To repent and turn to God is, is life-changing. We must change our way of thinking and leave our former life of sin. We must no longer follow our old ways, but listen obediently to God's word fulfilled in Jesus Christ. To have a true repentance and a turning to God affects the entirety of a person's existence. Instead of going our own way and, li and living for ourselves, it involves loving and serving our God with all of our, all of our heart and, and mind and strength. 
and loving our, our neighbors like we love ourselves. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning to God in faith. To help understand what repentance is, think of a, a husband and wife in a car. The, the wife tells her, her husband to turn right at the next junction, and, and by mistake, he turns left. And when he realizes what he has done, he says to his wife, I'm sorry, my love, I went the wrong way. But if that's all he does, that isn't enough, is it? His saying sorry isn't getting them any closer to where they need to go. It isn't even stopping them from going further away. To get where they want to be, he needs to stop the car, turn it around, and go the opposite direction the way his wife told him to go. That is repentance. This is an illustration of how we, we must turn to God, turn to, turn to go in God's direction instead of our own. Only when we change directions and turn to God will we have our sins wiped out. The word that means wiped out in our text compares forgiveness to the complete wiping away of ink from the surface of a document. There are also two other promises made to us when we repent of our former way of life and turn to God in verses 19 and 20. The first says that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Interesting phrase. It reminds me of, a, of like a, a cool breeze on a hot day or a re- refreshing, cleansing shower. God doesn't promise us that times will be easy when we follow him. Uh, a Christian's life is not, doesn't consist of, of a bed of roses, But when we repent and turn to God, times of refreshing will come by means of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit into us. Jesus, through his Spirit, refreshes our own spirit as we receive his love, his presence, and his guidance. Ultimately, when we turn to God and become his child, we join something something huge. We have the promise in verse 20 and 21 that Jesus will come back and will restore all things. This is the third promise. Heaven and earth will be made new. Sin and death will be eradicated. And when we repent and turn to God in faith, we become part of of the story. The story of God's redemption and recreation. The book of Acts keeps record of how many people were repenting and turning to Jesus. Before Pentecost, uh, chapter 1 tells us there were 120 believers. At the end of chapter 2, it says that 3,000 people were added to their number. And now in our text in chapter 4-4, we read that many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000 in total. So I think we can at least double that number to include women and perhaps some children. So the number began with 120, and now there are about 10,000 people in Jerusalem who have repented and turn to God. Let's, let's take a moment to examine ourselves. Second Corinthians 13, 5 commands, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Stephen Lawson uh, tells a story about John Wesley. Wesley was an 18th century Methodist evangelist 
who was ordained into the ministry in 1728. By his own admission, he was not personally converted to Christ until 10 years later. Not until May 24, 1738, did Wesley come to saving faith in Christ. For a full decade, Wesley had labored as an evangelist and missionary, preaching on both sides of the Atlantic. Yet throughout this time, this famed preacher was not a true believer in Christ. However, in 1738, Wesley attended St. Paul's Cathedral in London and, and heard Psalm 130 sung in an anthem. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Deep con- conviction came over his heart. How could he find acceptance with God who kept perfect records of his many sins. Later that night, Wesley visited a small group of believers where he heard read the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary on, on the book of Romans. The gospel of God's grace shined into his lost heart, and his regenerated soul was strangely warmed, as he would later write. And John Wesley was converted to Christ ten years after he began as a pastor. That story surprised me. I believe that there are three kinds of people here this morning. Those who have repented and turned to God. Those who have not and are going their own way. And the third kind of people are like John Wesley. Those who decide... those who deceive themselves into believing they are Christians but are not. What category do you fall into? Will you join the growing number of converts? Will you join the vast multitude described in Revelation 7? A multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one will be able to count standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And then we will cry together in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. At the beginning of chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and put on trial. They are asked, By what power or by what name did you do this? They're referring to the healing of the crippled beggar. And, and Peter, I think, is just thrilled with, with, with this question. He says, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you, you and all the people of Israel, all of us here today, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. This message is about Jesus, and, and the whole Bible points to Jesus. Acts 3, and 23 quotes the book of Deuteronomy, which prophesies about Jesus. In fact, our text says that Moses and all the prophets from Samuel onward have prophesied about the days of Jesus. Jesus is the stone that many have rejected. To some, Jesus is like a stone that that the builders looked at and then 
toss aside because they don't see him for who he really is. Their eyes are blind. But Jesus has become the capstone or the the cornerstone, the most important stone of the building, the stone that the others, all the others depend on. Jesus is the foundation of the church. Without Jesus as the cornerstone or or foundation, the the building would crumble. Earlier in in the message and and in the Bible text, we were invited to repent and to turn. Ultimately, when we repent and turn to God, we need to turn to Jesus himself. We need to believe in him. Jesus is the only way that we are reconciled to God. Verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The world offers so many other options, but Jesus is the only way. He was the only way by which the crippled man was healed. And he is the only way by which we are healed. Jesus says in 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we choose another way, it only leads to death. In John 1.5.12, it says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The question we should be asking is not why is there only one way to God, but rather why is there any way at all? How is it that God would be so merciful and loving as to grant us repentance after we have repeatedly rebelled against his authority and his majesty? That's the real question. Let us conclude with with looking at how we are like the crippled beggar. The man was born crippled. We are born crippled sinners. We could not walk We could not walk, sorry, he could not walk and was stuck in his physical condition as a lame person. We too have been stuck in our spiritual condition, stuck in our sin, unable to escape that life on our own strength. The beggar's ankles and feet prevented him from being able to get up and walk. And our sin and our sinful ways prevent us from being able to walk and please God on our own. The crippled beggar was stuck outside God's temple. And in our sinful condition, we, we too, were were once not part of the church. The crippled beggar was begging for money for his livelihood, and we sinners are also beggars. We search to be satisfied, and as sinners, we can never find what we are looking for until we see Jesus coming toward us. It is when he says, look at me, then we realize where our hope is. Jesus healed the crippled beggar, and he wants to heal our crippled life and restore our relationship with the Father. Jesus reaches out his hand to us. 
It is because of God's free gift of grace that we are able to get up and leave our life of sin. Jesus invites us. He says, he says, repent and turn to me and leave your life of sin so that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing. My Holy Spirit may come to you. I promise that I will make all things new. I am the way, the truth, and your life. Come to me, all you who are burdened by a life of sin, of trying to work out your own salvation. For salvation is found in no one or nothing else. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Come to me and believe, and I will give you life. Amen.